Welcome to Vision Insights, a podcast series produced by Miami Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired. My name is Cameron Sisser, and I'm proud to host this very special episode of the series. One of the goals of this series is to demonstrate the incredible, often heroic accomplishments of persons who are blind or visually impaired to underscore the mission of Miami Lighthouse for the Blind to demonstrate that it's possible to see without sight. Helen Keller wrote, life is either a daring adventure or nothing at all. In this episode, we will introduce to you two truly daring adventurers. Both are highly motivated and successful. Both are women who let nothing stand in their way. And both are blind. We introduce you to Kaya Armstrong, a visually impaired pilot who recently fulfilled a personal dream by flying a small airplane cross-country from Arizona to Washington, D.C. Kaya's story is one of determination, perseverance, and personal courage, and she's only 22. Sean Cheshire is a blind Paralympian who has competed on the national and international levels in tandem cycling, biathlon, rowing, and other sports. Sean recently made national headlines by cycling 3,800 miles across America from Florence, Oregon to Richmond, Virginia. And wait until you hear about her next incredible challenge that she's training to face. Let's begin our conversation with multi-sport champion, Sean Cheshire. Sean, you were sighted and served in the U.S. military and as a paramedic before losing your vision to traumatic brain injury. Please tell us a little bit about what happened. So I joined the military when I was 17, right out of high school. I was an aircraft armament system specialist. So I worked on uh, arm, uh, attack helicopters that had rocket launchers, missile pods, um, machine guns. And basically my job was to, that when the pilots went and shot at something that they hit their target and we were responsible for the live loading of uh, live ammunition on the aircraft. Uh, it was a, a really cool experience. I was definitely very young uh, when I was in the military and um, honorable discharge uh, with a leg injury and some other medical, like uh, con- multiple concussions and stuff like that. I. Uh, was a stay-at-home mom for a while and then eventually went back to school, became an EMT. And I remember that when I stepped into EMT class, my goal was to be a firefighter and like work on rescue. But really what happened was, is I really loved the medical aspect of what I was doing and went on to become a paramedic. And I don't have any memory of what happened, uh, but one day I was working on the back of an ambulance, taking care of a patient and somehow got knocked off my feet, fell back, uh, sustaining a closed head injury, hitting the occipital lobe of my head. And immediately after that injury, I um, was very legally blind, almost blind. I had some usable vision and I just remember uh, just being really sick and not really understanding at first, like what was happening, why I couldn't stand up. And, uh, you know, eventually I got into a concussion clinic and then just really started learning about the impact of TBI and concussion and uh, really what resulted 
from that brain injury was within two and year, two years, I lost my all, all usable vision. I don't even have light perception. And I can tell you that, that, you know, a little over two years that I was visually impaired, you know, in my mind, I was just working really hard to get what I lost back, you know, occupational therapy, physical therapy, trying to go back to work part-time as a paramedic and just kind of really struggling, but in complete denial that really what was happening was I was losing all of my vision. And so a little over two years, I lost all of my usable vision and, uh, you know, that has resulted in, you know, my vision today, which is literally nothing. You attribute that to multiple concussions. What were some of the other injuries to your head that you sustained? Nothing, nothing significant. I mean, just, I mean, in retrospect, I, I'm sure that they were. And I, you know, I just remember, you know, a couple of times of just really getting hit really good by something, you know, by solid objects, you know, things that are moving. Um, I, I think that when I was in the military, there was such a lack of discussion around concussion and TBI that, you know, I remember, you know, going to sick call, they check your pupils, they check your blood pressure, you know, and they're like, like, okay, you're okay. Have some light PT and you know, you're good to go. It really wasn't until I sustained this last injury and uh, went to the concussion clinic to really understand the impact that all of them had on me. And I, I, I didn't, I didn't have anyone to educate me back then. Uh, nobody was really talking about concussions or multiple concussions and the impact. Uh, what it was really after this injury that I was educated as to the changes that can occur and how it impacts you. And so now it all makes sense today. And TBI stands for? Traumatic brain injury. What motivated you to become a para-athlete and how did your condition affect your decision-making? You know, I really think that, you know, going from a sighted, independent woman, single parent, really loving my job at that time, to being blind, no job. You know, I, I really nosedived into depression. You know, lost my desire to live. I actually had literally no desire to live like this. And you know, there's this transition phase of this just totally sucks, and wanting to kill myself, to trying to kill myself, to being surrounded by a bunch of people that really believed in me, trying to push me towards something to get me interested in something. So there, you know, so it would help me from a mental, emotional perspective. So my introduction to parasports was really just people just trying to get me to care about something. Cause I was really not caring about much of anything at that time. And um, you know, my first, entry into any kind of athletics as a blind person was running with team red, white, and blue. And I never thought in a million years as a blind person, I could run. And we ran, you know, the first time I went out with them, my mobility instructor, Katie from the uh, VA hospital up in Syracuse made the tether at home and then drove me to team red, white, and blues first running group or my first running group with them. And that 
I just remember that that is where the curiosity started. And then I went to a, um, a biathlon, like little camp where it was roller skis and the audio rifle. And that was again, curiosity. And then I went to a, a camp for learning how to ride, learning how to race on a tandem. And that was where a couple of things happened. Um, I was still very kind of anger, angry and frustrated and not very pleasant in my opinion uh, about this um, new way of living as a blind person. Uh, and so I had to make a decision, right? I had to, I was, these people that show up to work with us as pilots are just these positive, amazing individuals. And, and I was very much disgruntled. So I had there, I had to choose, you know, to, you know, what are you going to do, Sean? Like, are you going to browbeat everybody that comes around to try to help you? Or are you going to pull your head out of your rear end and be someone you can be proud of? So it was there that all I was like, what the hell, Sean, like, what are you doing? And decided that I was going to try to figure out how to be someone I could be proud of. And also is what, this is where I discovered about the Paralympics. I have lived my entire life up to that point, knowing about the Olympics and I've known about the special Olympics, but I never knew about the Paralympic games. So this is where I was educated that I could be an elite athlete and race against the best in the world as a blind athlete. And, you know, hopefully one day compete at the Paralympic games. And I was just very curious about that. And I said, okay, so when are the next games? And they're like, oh, three and a half years to Rio. And I was like, okay, okay. Yeah. I, like I can do that. Like total ignorance. Cause I obviously had no idea what being an, an elite athlete and what that lifestyle looks like. So I, um, I decided to take that as a challenge, especially when someone said, you know, you, you'll, you'll never make it to Rio. You could train for Tokyo because it gives you more time because you've never been a cyclist. And, but in that moment, that's where I took that challenge upon myself to put everything I had into training and prepping to go to the Paralympic games, racing with team USA. Tell us a little bit more about the tandem cycling process. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You take a single sport, which is in the world of sighted riders, a single sport, and you make it into a team sport. And so, you know, on a tandem, I have what's called a pilot, which is a sighted pro cyclist on the front of the bike. And I'm referred to as a stoker. And it's just this really interesting experience of, you know, taking two, two different types of cyclists, two different individuals, two different personalities and putting them on one bike and their best chance of success and being strong and effective racers is learning how to work together as a team. And, you know, much of that is communication and it's really caring about each other, you know, as human beings and individuals. And it's, you know, it's hard. It, there is nothing easy about the process of working uh, with someone on a tandem, but it is so rewarding. It is just, it's like a bond that you'll have forever with that person. 
because you're working. It's like a relationship. You're you're working through the good stuff and you're working through the hard stuff. Thanks, Sean. We'll get back to your cycling in just a moment. But in 2018, you took on a very different challenge, a rim to rim hike across the treacherous terrain of the Grand Canyon. You crossed the 42.3 miles across the canyon in just over 24 hours a record for blind hikers. What exactly motivated you to take on this difficult challenge? And what was it like? (laughs) So I sustained a concussion that year and could not race the tandem. And I was a little bit um, kind of floundering from the perspective of, I was really never meant to be an elite athlete, you know, like racing in that culture forever. It was really at this transition period for me. So I had already been contemplating retirement from, you know, team USA racing. And because I couldn't race that year, I decided to take a, a women's retreat hike in the Canyon grand Canyon for, I don't know, it was like three or four days in the end of June. And I've never hiked before really. So this was, everything was new to me. And it was so frustrating and it was so hard. And I just, I'm sure I cried multiple times through this process. But when I came out of the Grand Canyon, you know, we had, you know, I came up with this idea of, you know, could I become the first blind woman to do the double crossing of the Grand Canyon? So then we did some more research and, you know, there's been a couple of blind gentlemen that have done it. And we found that the record so far was 28 hours. So three friends of mine, uh, Jesse, Sarah, and Scott, we all decided that we were going to go and um, make an attempt. And so on October 8th in 2018, we decided to attempt the double crossing of the Grand Canyon. And we finished in 24 hours and 15 minutes. And at that point, that was the hardest (laughs) mental and physical push I had ever done, um, in my life. Was that straight through or did you take a rest in between? It was, it was straight through hiking. The only time we stopped was to use the bathroom, um, for me to kind of eat something. Cause it was hard for me to walk on that terrain while trying to eat. Uh, so yeah, so those, we, we paused. And what were the altitude changes? There was over 20,000 feet of elevation changes between ascending and descending. Last year, you rode your bicycle from coast to coast, from Oregon to Virginia. The logistics must have been daunting, coordinating your team's trek over such a long distance. How did you put this effort together, and who joined you on the ride? Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, One of my pilots and I were talking about training to race to Tokyo before COVID shut everything down. And for me, like I needed a challenge. I don't do very well just kind of with no direction. I kind of needed direction. So we came up with this idea of attempting to, you know, this, it was really this thought process of, you know, being sighted now in the world of the blind, being a cyclist, blind people don't ride single bikes. Well, I like to decide what I can and can't do myself rather than a societal norm, you know, being put on me. So I was like, well, if I, if I were to ride a single bike across the country, what would that look like? And then just me and my best friend, Jesse, and just a small group of people, we just started talking about it. And we just started, you know, trying to figure out how we could do that. And um, we started talking about it in like October. 
And, you know, we started our ride in Oregon on May 17th, the following year. And it was just, you know, searching technology and doing some practicing and trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work. And uh, we took an RV out on the road with us and there was a film crew. And so we had a lot, it was a lot of logistics and it was uh, quite a few people. And we started by dipping our tires into the ocean in Florence, Oregon. And we rode all the way across the country and finished in Virginia Beach, Virginia by dipping our tires in the ocean. Um, and I have to tell you that that was by far the hardest and scariest thing I had done at that time. And I just, it's interesting. So I had this idea last year of doing this mountain bike race called Tour Divide. And it's almost 2,700 um, miles on the continental divide from Banff, Canada to the Mexico border in New Mexico. And up until last year, I thought that was the scariest and hardest thing I'd ever done. And then this past June, we decided to enter the race of the tour divide and we just raced single mountain bikes on the tour divide, um, this mountain bike race. And I have to tell you that was a thousand times harder than the ride last year. And, uh, the hardest, scariest, most dangerous thing I've done yet to date is this tour divide race. We just finished this summer and, um, you know, there, I wanted to quit every day. And it's like one of those moments where I literally, it was like, there's a reason why blind people don't do this <laughs> when I was out there. Uh, but I, you know, I didn't quit. And every day I, I woke up and we wrote another day and until we finished. And I have to tell you, like it to this day, I sit here and I can't believe that we pulled that off and we really use the technology and the things that we learned from doing the ride last year and implemented them into this summer. And, and we were able to, and we were able to do it and it's never been done by a blind person before. Right. So I'm excited to see how me doing the things I do make the world a little bit bigger and hopefully encourage other people to find out what they want to do. And it, rather than it be a thought process of what I can and can't do, it's how do I do it? I really want to try. I want, I, it would be great if I could do this. So how do I do it? Not, I can't do it because I'm blind. How could you do it? So I'm hoping that this, I can start this new fever, you know, and get people thinking a little bit differently to push themselves to do the things that they desire to do. What a wonderful message. You truly are pushing yourself mentally and physically on all your challenges. And if we've learned anything about you today, it's that you are constantly planning the next exciting challenge. What's up next for you? <laughs> so a friend of mine, Lonnie Bedwell, who is the first blind man to kayak the distance of the Colorado River, and he's kayaked other things. I just don't know what. Um, he asked me if I would be interested in joining him in a team to summit Mount Everest wow. uh, in April. So we are working. So that's what I'm training for now. And we're going to start fundraising and to go and we're trying to make this a record breaking trip. So if we summit, I'll be the first blind woman to ever summit Mount Everest. And there have been three blind men that have summited. Uh, Lonnie would be the fourth, but we're also going to summit. There's a mountain right next to uh, Everest 
And I think we're going to summit both because that's never been done by a blind person. So that's, that's kind of like the plan right now. That's an exhilarating challenge. What is the planning process like on such a challenge like this? So, I mean, on my own, the best thing I can do is be physically fit and strong as I can possibly be, because that will also help with the elevation. Um, and then we're, we're discussing right now the cost and we're, I think they're putting together, there's a, there's an organization that's called sightless summits that help, uh, the blind and visually impaired, uh, summit mountains. And we're just working on what it's going to cost, like what we're going to need. I have an equipment list that I have to work on getting, and then we'll start meeting once a month somewhere where it's cold and mountainous and work on hiking and skills. And I think in March, we have a five-day trip planned to South America to work on a mountain somewhere for skills before we head over um, to Mount Everest. Wow. That's all I know (laughs) right now. (laughs) You are truly an inspiration, Sean. After so many amazing athletic achievements, what message would you like to share with our blind and visually impaired listeners and their families? You know, last year on the ride across the country, we stopped at two schools for the blind and deaf children. And I have to tell you, those are our future adventures. I I mean, I can't wait till I have time to go and visit all of the schools for the blind and deaf, because I really feel like, like if that, that is like, those are going to be those are the adventurers we're going to be supporting. Um, when I started, I started a nonprofit called Choosing to See uh, because of my experience as a blind person um, on how to support the blind and visually impaired population. And uh, I think that for me, I mean, the best thing that the sighted world can do is to stop putting limitations on people and stop thinking you know, people should be or do certain things just based off of what it is that they know. Right. Um, You know, I can't tell you how many times people look at me and say, well, you don't look blind. Right. And I'm just like, what does that even mean? And I'm like, how many blind people have you met? And literally they don't ever meet anybody that's blind, but somehow somewhere along the way, these social norms and these boxes have been put out there and for me, like I'm going to do as much shattering as I can between now and the time I die. And I hope that I connect with at least one person to carry that on, you know, after I'm gone, because, and, and I think that the sighted needs to stop um, having those boxes and social norms. And I, want to empower the blind and visually impaired community that their life literally can look like what they want it to look like. It's just a matter of how, and if they need help or want to talk about it, they need to reach out to me because I will be as much of a resource as I potentially can for them. Thank you, Sean. You truly embody what we teach at Miami Lighthouse for the Blind, and that's to instill hope, confidence, and independence in all of our program participants. Thank you for speaking with us today and sharing your experiences on Vision Insights. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Now, let's meet Kaya Armstrong. Kaya, 
Welcome to Vision Insights. Let's begin by acquainting our audience with you. You were 14 years old when you first experienced challenges with your site. Can you tell us what happened? Well, at the time I was doing online school. So by the afternoon, I always had all of my schoolwork done. And my routine was to always go for a bike ride. And so I'd usually be gone for 30 minutes to an hour. But that day I'd gone down the street and come back in about five minutes because my vision was just really, really fuzzy and I didn't feel safe. So I got back and, you know, my mom, she looked in my eyes and she said that they were a little red. So we thought that it was allergies. So, you know, we didn't think much of it. And later that night, it had gotten really bad to the point where my mom could be standing a foot away from me and I couldn't see her anymore. Wow. And we were sent to Phoenix Children's the next day. And they told us that they were sorry, but they couldn't help us there. And they sent us to a retina specialist. We went through a whole lot of testing, just trying to figure out what was going on before they just ultimately decided that it was some kind of autoimmune disease. And to this day, we still don't have a specific specific diagnosis. We just know that for some reason, my the cells in my body started attacking my eyes. And it's left me with a little bit of vision, maybe a couple inches in front of my face. Wow. So your loss of sight basically happened overnight. That's... Yeah. Uh, wow. So an important aspect of your story is the tremendous support that you got from your family. And you mentioned your mom. How did your parents support you through this traumatic period uh, when your sight deteriorated? So through all of this, we were constantly reassured and promised by my retina specialists and all of my doctors that eventually I would get my eyesight back. And so through all of this, you know, that's one of the main things that they would always remind me. And so for my entire high school, all four years, the first two years were okay. Because I was doing online school, I could space my school out throughout the day. So it wasn't all at once and overwhelming. It wasn't hurting my eyes. And then it got to the point where I couldn't do math on my own anymore. So my parents would hook my computer computer up to our giant TV just so I could figure out the graphing and all of that. And then it got to the point where they were having to read the graphs to me because I just couldn't read them anymore. And with online school, they send you the requirements for conducting your own experiments there at home for your science classes. It got to the point with those that my parents were having to take over they were conducting the experiment and they were describing everything that was going on because I couldn't see to do it. And through all of that, towards the end, I was having a really hard time. But my family never let me say that I couldn't do something. They were always there and they always helped me find a way to do what any other normal person could do. So we were always going and we were bowling and we would attempt miniature golf. 
I'll say I'm not the best, but I sure did have a lot of fun when I was with all of them. <laughs> well, that, that that's um, inspirational that your family was there so, to support you. And, and uh, you talked about ha- them having to help you with math. I know there's a lot of math involved in um, flying. So, you know, what got you into wanting to fly? I had never given much thought to flying until I heard about this opportunity. About a week before, one of my instructors told me about this opportunity through the Foundation for Blind Children. I had been talking with my mom and had come up in conversation about things that I personally thought that I would never be able to do with the eyesight I had. And the top ones among those were drive a car and fly a plane. And it was literally a week to the day later that my braille instructor told me about an opportunity through the foundation for blind children she thought i'd be interested in and it was flight for sight and i went home and i told my mom you are never gonna believe what's going on (laughs) and i got home and i told my mom right then i need to do this because it was such a big achievement for you know anybody in the blind community and it was such a big achievement for myself proving that there aren't any limits that the words I can't don't belong in your vocabulary it's you know I can't do it yet you always need to remember the yet part because technology is always advancing there's always going to be a workaround for somebody without vision. So it, it seems like you lost your sight overnight and you decided to fly within a week. So you don't waste any time jumping into things, do you? No, I don't. <laughs> <I've>, <laughs> I love the adventure. I love experiencing new things. And don't get me wrong, if I don't like it, I won't do it again. But (laughs) I've learned that one of the big parts that got me through this was my faith. And one of the things that we aren't guaranteed is tomorrow. I don't want to live my life looking back, wishing I would have done something. And flying that plane, that would have been a big regret had I not attempted it. Had I not signed up to just be a part of it words to live by so you mentioned the foundation for blind children's flight for sight program and i i know you learned with instructor fred hall you also received training at leopard aviation near you in uh arizona it was a new experience for you as an aspiring pilot and i imagine that it was a new experience for your uh instructor um his name's Tyler Sinclair to teach you how to operate a a plane being visually impaired. What was it like for you uh, to climb into the cockpit for the first time and walk us through how Fred, who was your instructor with Flight for Sight, and uh, Tyler taught you how to fly? It was unbelievable the first time. I'd actually been working with two ground school trainers. It was Fred and 
Jackie. And I had spent, I believe it was a full month with them, just going over the books and, you know, sort of just dipping my toes <laughs> into this whole new world is what it was. All of the rules and expectations and meeting with Tyler for the first time was amazing. You know, he didn't waste any time jumping into it. And so the very first day, it was a Saturday morning. And we got there. And the very first thing he said is, you ready? And my response was, of course. He took me out to the plan that we were going to be training in. And I figured he would be in the main pilot seat, which is on the left side, like it would be in a car. And I figured I'd be sitting back and watching because, you know, I didn't even know how to turn the plane on. That's how new I was. <laughs> and he had said, no, you're getting in the pilot seat and you're going to learn by doing. And so, you know, I told my mom, it's like he threw me into the pool without knowing if I could swim or not. <laughs> but it was such an amazing experience. And for him not having the experience of working with somebody that is blind or visually impaired he did just such an amazing job he made sure to describe everything he walked me through starting up the plane he had me taxi the plane out to the runway by just directing me in the directions i needed to go and he had me taking the plane off that very first day and that was just such that was a big confidence boost knowing that you know, he was going to leave it all in my hands. He was just there to guide me through it. Wow. So when you pilot an airplane, you're accompanied by a co-pilot, but you're doing the flying like you said at the very beginning, your first flight. So can you explain the relationship between you and the co-pilot? Yeah, so it, it took a little bit. We were out training every other week for about eight months. And while we were working on ways to modify the tools, we were also just working on learning how to best communicate with each other, what type of communication would work best when we're up in the air. And it got to the point where once he had walked me through, once I could turn the plane on, get the plane running, then he would have me pull out he would tell me if I needed to go left or right, just guiding me down the taxiway. He was my eyes in the sky. But he would leave all of the controlling up to me. And so we would get up in the air. He'd have me take off, and he'd tell me to keep going up until we would reach altitude. And he'd tell me to, okay, level it off. And then he'd make sure we were going in the right directions. And then other than that, it was just a really calm and smooth flight. So after eight months of this type of training, you accepted a challenge to fly across the country from Arizona, where you live, to an airport outside D.C. What convinced you to undertake that amazing feat of flying and endurance? Because it, it was such a big accomplishment. I loved flying the plane. I'd had somebody ask me once if I had caught the flying bug. And, you know, I'd never heard that term before, but I had to agree because 
after being up in the air, you never want to come back down. It's amazing up there. And so hearing about the opportunity to, to fly across the entire country and be able to show the world that you don't have to have sight to accomplish your dreams, to do the impossible. It was, it wasn't hard to convince me to do it. I can tell you that. The public has this image of a pilot having nerves of steel. Were you feeling confident when you took off from Arizona on the first leg of your journey? I really was. I'd never, I'd never gotten scared once when I was in the plane. I always had such an amazing time. That was one of the things that my mom sat me down before I'd even gotten the position. And we had just, we'd had this brief conversation. She had told me, it's more, li- more than likely you'd die in a car crash than you would in a plane crash. But you need to be aware of that possibility. And of course I knew about that possibility. And I was okay with it because my life is right with the Lord. So I know if anything were to happen, that I would see my family again in heaven one day. And, you know, that was enough reassurance for my family to be okay. You know, if anything happens, it'll be okay. And it was an amazing trip with everything included. So as you flew across the country, I I know you made some scheduled and unscheduled stops along the way, and you faced some serious challenges, including bad weather. Did you ever have any doubts that you wouldn't achieve your goal? I think the only doubts I ever had throughout the entire trip was if I'd make it there on time. I didn't doubt that we would make it. I knew that we would make it because while I've only had about eight months, Tyler's been doing this for years. So he would know, you know, if anything ever happened in case there was an emergency, he would know what to do. And that was one of the big things that happened that very first day. We didn't make it to our very first scheduled stop. We got stuck in Las Vegas, New Mexico, (laughs) this tiny little town. And we were just stuck there overnight because the minute we landed to refuel, the clouds moved in and we were stuck. And then the next day we were there until about noon when there was this little break in the clouds. We were able to get out. And then just throughout the rest of the trip, it really sticks with you how unpredictable the weather can be. But that's why you always schedule extra time (laughs) whenever you're doing anything. Because while the weather may say one thing, it can end up doing the complete opposite. And that's one of the reasons we ended up landing in Washington, D.C. a day early is because we were watching the weather the entire week leading up to it. And it said that it was supposed to rain in Washington the day we were supposed to land. And we were so thankful we ended up going in a day early because the day we were supposed to land, it really rained all day. There never would have been any time for us to land. And tell us that feeling that you got when you finally did land and you achieved your dream. It was the most overwhelming feeling in the world. I was feeling so many things at once. I was, 
I think it was disbelief that it was over. And I had so many amazing people from the Foundation for Blind Children waiting there to meet me. They flew my family out, my mom, my dad, my little brother. And it was amazing because I knew what this flight meant for me. But to hear from other students how much it meant to them because they themselves had doubted. They didn't think that they could pursue their what other people called crazy dreams because they didn't think it was possible. But just doing this one thing, it was it was so life-changing, not just for myself, but for all of them. Just the realization that if you stop limiting yourself, you know, the sky's the limit, literally. A wonderful message. And you and you kind of became famous overnight by doing this journey. Television stations, newspapers from, you know, really across the globe covered you. Tell us how you handled all that attention. It was, for me, it was unbelievable. I had my mom, she had told me that this was going to be big. But I only thought it would be big in, like, the, the blind or visually impaired community, people that knew about it. I didn't realize at the time. I didn't comp- fully comprehend how massive this accomplishment and this journey would stretch and reach all of these people. And then, you know, it was like halfway through the trip, I got in a call from my grandma, you know, just checking in. And she was like, have, have you put your name in Google and looked yourself up yet? I was like, what? And I did. And there were all of these articles about me. And that was unbelievable. <laughs> and so, you know, thankfully, anytime I've had to do an interview, they've haven't been all at once. <laughs> but I've had so many people that are with me. And everybody that's ever interviewed me have been just so amazing. And that's, that's very cool. Yeah. And, and you're, you're just 21, right? So you I'm 22 a, now. Oh, you're 22 now. Okay. So yeah. you basically have your whole life ahead of you. Um, mm-hmm. what, what are your plans for the future? I want to go to law school. My goal right now is to eventually go to Harvard. I want to be a lawyer. And I just finished my first semester at community college yesterday. So it's, you know, I finished one journey. I'm already on to the next one. It's amazing. Those are quite the goals, and I'm sure you'll accomplish them as you've done already. So you've already shared with us some very powerful messages. What else would you like to share with our listeners and in particular, our blind and visually impaired listeners and their families? I think it's the message that I've been making sure that everybody takes away from this this achievement, this event, is don't limit yourself. Limiting yourself limits everything you could be. You can be anything you put your mind to. You just have to know going into it, you might have to work double or triple as much as somebody with sight. But in the end, all of the work you put into it is going to be worth it. 
Thank you, Kaya, for sharing that. And we know you'll be succeeding and we'll be hearing from you as a successful uh, attorney. And, and thanks for taking the time to speak with us and share your truly inspiring story. I know everyone listening to this interview share my best wishes for you into the future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You are listening to Vision Insights, a podcast series produced by Miami Lighthouse for the Blind and Visually Impaired. My name is Cameron Sisser. I welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions about this podcast series by contacting me at C-S-I-S-S-E-R at MiamiLighthouse.org. You can also follow us on social media by searching on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for Miami Lighthouse. Vision Insights is brought to you by LighthouseShop.org. Do you or do you know someone suffering from vision loss? Visit LighthouseShop.org for all your low vision needs, from magnifying glasses to solar shields to talking watches. LighthouseShop.org is there for you.